Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for today's call, which is SB 1070, Racial Profiling in the Spotlight. Uh, I'm Jumana Musa. I'm Deputy Director with the Rights Working Group. The Rights Working Group's main campaign currently is Face the Truth to Stop Racial Profiling. Rights Working Group has from the beginning approached this Arizona law not as an anti-immigrant measure or as an immigration measure, but really as a racial profiling measure and a racial profiling law. Recently, the Supreme Court, in considering whether or not the law was constitutional, struck down a number of portions of the law, but left one portion intact saying that they just couldn't make the decision now. It was Section 2B, and they said they couldn't decide whether the provision that, asked, that requires people to show their papers, what we call the Papers Please provision, that would allow officers, when they have a reasonable suspicion that someone they stop may be undocumented, to ask them for their papers or to check their immigration status. From our perspective, it was never an immigration enforcement measure because we know that there's no independent or objective way to judge somebody's immigration status. So by default, law enforcement officers are going to have to rely on racial profiling, whether they're looking at someone's skin color, listening for an accent, whether they're speaking another language, uh, looking at their religion as a way to to distill that, they're going, to, they're going to question all types of people, whether they're citizens, whether they're lawful residents, whether they're here on a tourist visa, whether they're undocumented. There's no question from the perspective of a rights working group that this law is going to weigh heavily on communities of color in Arizona. We've already seen it with immigration enforcement programs that bring state and local police into the fold, even when it's optional. So to require it, we see as requiring racial profiling. The Supreme Court left it open as to say, we're not sure that we can strike this down now. We don't know if it can be done constitutionally without racial profiling. And so that's now the open question. We pulled together this call to get a few different perspectives on what will this law look like if implemented and what's being done to push it back. So for today's call, I'm going to give a brief introduction, and then we're going to get started with our speakers. We will have, first up, Omar Jadwat, who's a senior immigration attorney with the ACLU. The ACLU, of course, is litigating this case and has been since the beginning, and particularly with these provisions from a constitutional perspective and arguing uh, the civil rights infractions, including racial profiling. So Omar can tell us about that perspective on the case and also where they are with their litigation. The second person we're going to hear from is Opal Tometi. She is the organizer with the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. She's been based in Arizona and is going to give us a perspective from on the ground in Arizona. What does this look like in communities and what does this feel like to communities? We are going to have what may be an, uh, a bit of an awkward uh, introduction to Senator Cardin. He is the senator from Maryland who is the Senate champion of the End Racial Profiling Act. I say it may be awkward because with the senator, he's scheduled to come in around 2.30, but of course, senator schedules can be erratic, so we will have to accommodate him when he calls in, so we apologize ahead of time if that you know, ends up being at an inopportune moment. But he will talk to us about his reaction to the case and why he thinks it's more important than ever to pass the End Racial Profiling Act. We are then going to, and this is again a bit awkward, but segue to if there's one or two questions for Senator Cardin uh, to ask them then because he will then have to get off the phone. And our final speaker will be Chief Ron Davis. He's the police chief from East Palo Alto, California. Most recently, he testified at the first uh, hearing in the Senate on racial profiling in 11 years. And he spoke very eloquently as to why racial profiling is bad law enforcement and why we need strong laws against it, uh, as well as why it doesn't work well for state and local police to enforce immigration laws. So we look forward to hearing from him from his law enforcement perspective. So to get it started, I would like to turn it over to Omar. Thanks, uh, Jimena, and thank you for uh, for inviting me onto the call. I um, I wanted to start just by kind of setting the stage a little bit, maybe um, expanding slightly on what Jimena said about where the kind of Supreme Court decision uh leaves us um, and then talk about what, what we see as some of the next steps. So 
Um, and all of this, obviously, mainly from the perspective of the litigation. Uh, the other folks will fill in the more interesting stuff, um, which doesn't involve going to court. Um, so, you know, what what happened in the Supreme Court, just to recap, is that three of the four sections that were up uh, of SB 1070 that were up in the court uh, were struck down. Um, the show me your papers, papers please, racial profiling, whatever you want to call it, the the exist the remaining section 2b um, was not struck down at that point but the Supreme Court specifically left the door open to further challenges and it set some pretty tight rules on what kinds of applications uh, or interpretations of, of that show me your papers provision would be unconstitutional um, and specifically uh, here you know it didn't uh, foreclose any kind of challenges based on racial profiling um, or other discrimination concerns. And I think that was, you know, is important to note in light of the fact that there was at the oral argument, I think a lot of um, talk about how, you know, this wasn't a case, the federal government's case that was up there wasn't about racial profiling. So um, the court didn't, you know, obviously say anything um, that forecloses any future challenges based on those kinds of claims. And so the, the question is, what does that mean for us, right? So we, we uh, at the ACLU, together with our partners at the National Immigration Law Center, MALDEF, and a bunch of other groups uh, and law firms have been litigating a separate challenge to SB 1070. We actually filed, uh, you know, two years ago, right before or several months before the federal government filed their suit. Um, and that, that lawsuit remains alive and so the you know the big question i think for us or the first question on the plate is um are there still uh opportunities to stop the remaining section of sb 1070 um the show me your papers provision to stop it from going into effect at all um and you know in that respect what what we have in our suit is we have different claims based on, um, you know, legal theories that, that the federal government did not present when it challenged SB 1070, as well as some of the same ones. Um, and we also have additional evidence that wasn't before the Supreme Court in the case that it decided in June. And so, um, so there are, we think, you know, potentially opportunities to go ahead and try to, try to um, continue to challenge uh, Section 2B um, before it goes into effect, and we are working as fast uh, and as aggressively as we can to really try to develop those claims and figure out how to bring them um, before the courts. Um, and so one thing that I want to make clear on this call is that, um, you know, this is kind of like a, a – the whole thing that kind of ended up in the Supreme Court is like the first battle, right, in a war against SB 1070, not to be too militaristic in my metaphors. But the 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 fact is that um, we've got a few different arrows in our quiver, and it's not uh, – each of them kind of comes uh, – becomes usable at a, at a different stage in the litigation. And so – up to now, the fight in the courts has largely been about kind of preemption, this structural claim about whether the federal government versus the states have authority in the immigration area. And there are still aspects of that preemption battle that are ongoing, even after the Supreme Court decision. Um, 
you know the 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 step that I think a lot of us uh, you know have been kind of thinking about is when do we really get to spotlight and highlight and focus on specifically the issue of racial profiling coming out of SB 1070. And I actually think, you know, that that's a little bit down the road. So it, that the, the claims based purely on racial profiling are that really highlight and focus on racial profiling, but center, you know, where, where racial profiling is a centerpiece, I think probably um, arise and are more uh, fully kind of, we would be more fully able to present those before the court after Section 2B actually goes into effect, and we're still in the world where Section 2B doesn't, doesn't, you know, hasn't taken effect yet. So we're kind of in this middle period where we're looking at other claims. You know, we have claims based on the Fourth Amendment, claims based on in, intentional discrimination, um, claim uh, the idea that the, the legislature enacted SB 1070 out of racial and national origin hostility. Those kinds of claims, you know, are maybe the next um, set of claims that get kind of teed up uh, in the process, although, um, and then, you know, and hopefully um, we can continue the injunction against um, Section 2B and never actually get to the point where we actually have to prove um, that, uh, that racial profiling is the effect because we won't have the law going into effect in the first place. Um, that said, one of the things that we've always tried to do in this case is present evidence to the court and to the public um, about um, about the racial profiling effects of SB 1070, and, and we have presented um, at every stage of this case uh, testimony from law enforcement officials who really make that point, who say that there's no way uh, to to implement this law without relying on uh, race and ethnicity. Um, so that's kind of where, where things are now. I'm looking forward to hearing what your questions are and, uh, and hearing what the other folks have to say. Thanks so much for that, Omar. That was a great analysis of sort of the case as it started and where it is now. So next we're going to go to Opal Tometi. She's going to talk to us again about what does this look like on the ground from her experience organizing in Arizona. Opal? Thanks so much, Jemana. Um, I appreciate you having me on the call uh, great to have this conversation and really highlight racial profiling as one of the central um, problems, <laughs> the core problem with SB 1070. Um, and as we all know, Arizona racial profiling issues did not start with SB 1070. This has preceded SB 1070, and we have a, a long history um, of racial profiling um, from workplace raids done by uh, Maricopa sheriffs. Sheriff Arpaio to police law enforcement engaging in raids and, and detention of people to racial profiling that takes place in African-American neighborhoods. Um, so racial profiling, I just want to say, is, is something that's been going on for some time now. It's not just about SB 1070. Um, and I appreciate the fact that Rich, uh, Rights Working Group is a place to kind of house this conversation about racial profiling at a, at a, at a larger scale, right? Um, so one thing I want to talk about is how racial profiling is impacting our communities. So the way that we see it playing out oftentimes um, are families being stopped while they're driving on their way to work or to see a relative or what have you um, and being pulled over by law enforcement, um, being asked a number of questions, and we 
are seeing people detained at that point. So Sheriff Arpaio has been engaging in this. Uh, Phoenix Police Department has been engaging in this. Um, secure communities has played a large part in the uh, incarceration of, of migrants in Phoenix. And so a lot of what we want to share with folks is that uh, secure communities is our main demand. So if we could see secure communities gone in our communities and uh, police and ICE no longer able to collaborate in that way, we would not see the amount of uh, detention um, as well as ensuing deportation of migrants out of the state of Arizona. Um, the other thing that we're seeing that even preceded uh, SB 1070 was the driver's license bans, the denial of basic social services to immigrant communities, various English-only rules, um, and essentially these were able to humiliate and dehumanize um, immigrants of color primarily and, and other communities of color um, in Arizona. And so this, too, was kind of the landscape that we find ourselves in in Arizona, where all these various laws and policies are impacting um, communities of color and immigrants alike. So then uh, as well as the expansion of detention centers in Florence and Eloy, which are other parts of Arizona. So I just want to add that. Um, and so with all the kinds of ways in which immigrants in our communities are being targeted from work sites to at home to, you know, maybe there are, somebody's out uh, movies or different things. We've heard a variety of different stories um, from the shackling of mothers while they're giving birth at Penn City and other facilities in Arizona, um, these kinds of things are taking place. So we are resisting. We're working collaboratively with a lot of different organizations. The resistance efforts have stepped up over the years. Um, and so that's where we focus our efforts, right? We want to empower our communities to know their rights, to defend themselves, and to ultimately defeat laws like SB 1070, as well as other laws that have passed over the years. Um, it, it didn't just happen overnight. Uh, so one way in which we've been resisting and one way that this has gone to the legal realm is with a case that's going to be carried actually in two days. It's Melendrez versus Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, MCSO, and that's a class action civil rights lawsuit. And that is a comprised of folks who has been uh, racially profiled it's compiled from evidence that we've been uh, documenting over the years, our, you know, ourselves in partnership with various other groups on the ground have been receiving calls on racial profiling. And so there are several plaintiffs in this lawsuit that are sharing their stories, going to be testifying later this week and into the coming weeks um, in Arizona against our Pio and Maricopa County Sheriff's Office in general. And so this, lawsuit I think is really important. It precedes the DOJ's findings um, of racial profiling um, with Sheriff Cho, but what we're, what we're uh, really excited about is that our local efforts here are finally being heard. This was years in the making, um, and so that's coming up just so you all know. We're also part of various SB 1070 um, actions, so actions against SB 1070. Uh, starting July 28th, there will be a large-scale march against SB 1070 
um, emphasizing the fact that families are being torn apart by these kinds of laws and policies and really promoting the leadership um, of immigrant families and uh, highlighting the importance of undocumented people being able to tell their stories, being able to share um, what's really going on in their communities, um, and just really, you know, just being courageous and being incredible and inspiring. And so uh, in Arizona, you've all probably seen various acts of nonviolent civil disobedience that's really highlighted um, the injustice that's taking place. And so that's something I'm sure that will keep on going on. Like I said, it's nonviolence civil disobedience really just show the contradictions in these kinds of laws and really to show the dignity inherent in all people. Um, so I just want to share that. That's happening the 28th. So look out for that. Uh, please share that information with other communities. We're looking for solidarity actions all across the nation, and that's going to be um, a huge thing. And then what else is going on is organizing at various levels, right? So we're documenting uh, stories that we hear. So because we know that SB 1070 is going into effect, we are anticipating the need to have documentation for lawsuits. Just like uh, Omar was sharing earlier, there likely will be lawsuits in the future. Um, and what we're trying to make sure is that we have the information and the testimonies to really make the case um, against racial profiling and against SB 1070 at large. There are other parts of SB 1070 that weren't heard by the Supreme Court, so um, that's, you know, that'll also be important for that. Um, and then we're also part of different teach-ins and advocacy fairs and organizing at the neighborhood-to-neighborhood -neighborhood level. Um, organizations such as Tonatiara and Puente and other groups in southern Arizona have been operating uh, these things called the Comites for the Defense of the Barrio which is more of a neighborhood defense mechanism. So communities are able to get together, know their rights, uh, do crisis planning, um, do powers of attorney for, if it's for children, for last paychecks, various things, just in case um, people are detained while engaging in everyday kinds of activities. So uh, that's some of the resistance that's going on. Uh, one thing I would like to know and put a plug in for is, is the National Day Labor Organizing Network is anchoring a bus tour of undocumented people and allies that will start in Arizona on July 29th and go throughout the South. And I believe it's going to end probably uh, in North Carolina um, at the DSC. So that's anchored by undocumented people, by folks from Puente in Arizona, by EGEL, Immigrant Aid Justice League, and other partners across the nation who are just showing the bravery of people standing up for themselves, making the stand that, you know what, folks are, might be undocumented, but they're unafraid. Um, we can no longer live in the shadows, can no longer uh, be behind the, the scene. Um, we need to share our stories in order to make the situation better, ultimately, right? And so folks will be participating in bold and direct action um, against those who are holding up back. Uh, they're also going to be emphasizing this borrow defense uh, community structure, teaching people how to organize in various cities across the nation, um, as well as just showing the fact that, you know what, the Supreme Court had their day, but we know that our, our case isn't so much constitutional, right? That was, those were the main arguments, but it's a moral question. And that there's been a crisis, and we need to, to call attention to that, and there's a moral crisis here. Um, 
So that's, you know, that's, I think, a very important thing that people across the nation could participate in, can endorse, they can tweet it, they can Facebook it, um, and other things, or even donate to that effort. Um, and then one last thing I want to mention before I, before I wrap up is uh, the, the need uh, for coalition building. And this is something that Baji, the Black Alliance for Just Integration, has played an integral role in, in Phoenix in the formation of a new black and brown coalition um, of Arizona. This is a coalition that's dedicated to justice and fighting for um, human and civil rights in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and Maricopa County at large. Um, and this is comprised of community leaders, educators, public officials, pastors, a variety of people, about 60 people representing different organizations coming together. Um, we've organized you know, press conferences and events um, around racial profiling that affects African-American communities as well as uh, Latino communities. So that's just one thing I want to highlight. One of the main players in that is uh, Pastor Warren Stewart, who is the pastor of First Institutional Baptist Church, and he's the chair of the National Immigration Forum. So various immigrant rights groups are coming to the table alongside um, African-American leaders in Arizona. And I think this is an important formation because historically racial profiling um, has, has really been targeted in the African-American community locally as well as in other cities. I'm sure um, folks can relate across the country. And so what we're finding is that this kind of a coalition can really give the kind of weight and pushback to laws like SB 1070 and other kinds of things that are taking place in Arizona. So thank you so much for having me on. I'll just end there, and I look forward to any kinds of questions that folks have um, after the other participants. Thanks so much for that, Opal. That's a great review of what's happening on the ground. So uh, right now, we're still waiting for Senator Cardin to join, but he's not quite got on. So, Chief Davis, I'd like to go to you if you'd like to go ahead and start. And I apologize ahead of time. I don't know how much time we have with the Senator, so we may have to interrupt you and come back to you. But uh, please, if you could go ahead and get started. Not a problem. Good morning and uh, well, good afternoon for many of you. And thank you for having me on the call. Um, I, I want to go a little bit different than what my statement was with regards to the uh, Senate hearing because I think we can start with the what we all agree on, and that would be the implementation of the Papers, Please law will definitely re or requirement would definitely result in racial profiling. What concerns me as a police chief is, first of all, I think we should acknowledge, in my opinion, that law enforcement has made uh, pretty good strides over the last 20 to 30 years, albeit much more is needed, in really recognizing the need for strong community and police relations in order to really reduce crime and violence. And in fact, it's during this period that we've seen some of the greatest crime reductions have occurred during the community policing era versus that of the traditional enforcement policing era. So we're learning more and more as police executives that the relationship between the police and the community really is beyond just the buzzword. It really is a key to effective crime fighting. So I disagree with the notion that um, that we somehow compromise public safety by not addressing this issue. In hey, fact, Chief Davis, yes. if I could, I think that's a great segue because we have had the senator join us. So is it all right if we sort of put you on pause? Please do. And then, okay, thank you so much. So, uh, Senator Cardin, I understand you're on the phone with us. 
I am. I was listening to Chief Davis. Uh, we, we had the pleasure of having him testify before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee uh, on the Ending Racial Profiling Act, and he did a great job. And I, I thank him very much for his leadership, and I thank you all for what you're doing to to advance uh, legislation that would end racial profiling in America. I, I just heard the, the last few sentences of Chief Davis, and uh, there is no question that racial profiling has no place in modern law enforcement. It is un-American, it's against our values, and it's a waste of resources. And I think that's been proven over and over again. Uh, we, we want uh, to, it also causes a great deal of mistrust in working with communities in which law enforcement needs to have confidence uh, in a working relationship with. The hearing that we had, I think, made that very clear. And I must tell you, we started to get some uh, Republicans uh, thinking that maybe they could help us and get this bill passed. So we, we are optimistic. We started with nine co-sponsors. We're now up to 16, in large part because of the work of the people that are on this call. So I want you to know that we really do appreciate all of your hard work. Uh, we obviously have a new challenge uh, with the uh, Supreme Court decision in the Arizona case. Uh, we are certainly encouraged by uh, parts of the laws that were ruled to be unconstitutional, but extremely disappointed that the court left open the issue of show me your papers provisions, which uh, clearly uh, uh, leads to um, racial profiling when reasonable suspicion language uh, could cause um, racial profiling because police officers could use uh, a single criteria of race in developing reasonable suspicion that could uh, say someone is here illegally. So it's a, it's a major concern and something that we need to work on. I say work on because Justice Kennedy left open the door for a future challenge once the state has taken action. So uh, we, we need to monitor that and be able to move uh, aggressively uh, in regards to the Arizona case. But we also need to get passed in the United States Congress legislation that makes it clear once and for all that you can't justify the use of racial profiling at any level of government, whether it's local government or the national government, and that uh, it, it, the fear that people are saying that it's needed for law enforcement is just wrong. We are talking about the random stopping of people because of their race or their, their religion, uh, the, the harassment uh, and uh, the sloppiness of, of law enforcement. Uh, I must tell you, I'm encouraged by the, the 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 participants in this call and the unity that we've seen in the community. Uh, we we understand that America's strength is in its diversity, and that uh, we need to bring an end to this practice uh, for the sake of uh, of the values of our nation, but also for the sake of proper law enforcement. So I just really wanted to get on the phone. I know your, everyone's time is limited. But to thank you for your continued effort here, uh, I think we have momentum moving uh, and that we need to uh, uh, step up the interest and in, in working together we can accomplish, I think, our goal. Thank you so much for that, Senator. And do you have a couple minutes to stay on in case anyone has a question for I you? I do, now? yes, yes. Wonderful. So for those of you who are on the phone, enabled to, in order to be unmuted to be able to ask a question, you press star 1 on your telephone, and then we will be able to unmute you so you can ask a question. And for those of you who don't already know, I am always very pleased to be able to introduce Senator Card. He is, in fact, my home state senator. And so not just the uh, sponsor of the End Racial Profiling Act, but someone I have the privilege of being able to vote for, as well as a longtime champion on civil rights issues and immigration enforcement issues. Well, thank you. So we're just trying to give it a minute because I know it takes a second. I think, oh, we do have a question. So we're going to go ahead and unmute your line. 
Go ahead with your question. Hi, this is Samira from Rice Working Group. Um, thank you so much, Senator Cardin, for talking to us today. Um, and you sort of touched on this, but I was wondering if you could um, be a little bit specific about what immigrant rights and civil rights groups can do to bring more attention to Congress on the fact that this racial profiling law is about to take effect. Well, first, uh, thank you for what you have done. I said we started with no, nine co-sponsors. Uh, we're now up to 16. It'd be nice to be able to double that number. So take a look at the 16 who have co-sponsored and try to get us additional co-sponsors. I think we need to get some Republican open support. And quite frankly, uh, we had Republican support uh, going back before uh, the, the attack on our country on September the 11th, and we now need to, to redouble our efforts. And I think the way we do that is to dispel the, the, what's not in this bill. This bill does not prohibit intelligent law enforcement based upon the facts of a case. You can develop the cause to do what you need to for an investigation. What this does is uh, make it illegal to uh, do random type stops uh, or to affect the way that you investigate a case due to uh, race, religion, ethnic background, etc. Uh, it also provides the tools necessary for law enforcement to do the right thing by making the resources available uh, to, uh, to institute the right policies. And it's comprehensive, so it would cover everything from uh, the uh, Trayvon Martin type case to the random traffic stops that we've seen it, uh, occur uh, by certain police forces. So I think if you can get that type of information out to the public, exactly what's in this bill and why it's so important. And then lastly, uh, for those who are fiscal conservatives, this is a matter of the proper use of our resources. Every law enforcement agency today is strapped for resources. There isn't one that has a flush budget. And if, we need to make sure that those resources are used in the most effective way possible. And to see law enforcement wasting these precious resources uh, uh, by doing uh, – basically harassment of, of different ethnic communities, uh, I think the public would be outraged by that. I think the public's with us on this. we just got to energize the groups to action to get us more support in, in the Senate and the House and, and, to, and to try to move legislation as quickly as possible. But again, thank you so much for taking the time. You're making a difference. We're going to win this issue. Thanks so much for your leadership on this, Senator Cardin. Thank you. Uh, so now, if we could, and thank you again for your patience, uh, if we could go back to... Uh, Chief Davis, I, I'm sorry, I believe the person wanted to ask the question uh, re-got mine, except for we have now let the Senator go. So, Chief Davis, if you could please continue with where you were. Uh, thank you, and it was great to hear from the Senator. And I think he uh, covered a lot of stuff, so I won't be redundant. So let me, if I may, from a police executive point of view, if I can just put this down into one question. How does all of this play out in the field? How, do, how based on, if I'm Arizona, if I'm in Arizona, how do I now implement this law that I know um, is going to result in racial profiling, how do I minimize it? If I can borrow a, a phrase from Shakespeare, especially considering this is uh, the law number, this is really to be or not to be, right, since to be is the section. And so the question would be is, as law enforcement moves forward, we're going to, help to have to help them really define what is reasonable suspicion. Now, I understand that you're going to take this matter on and um, – through litigation and future litigation, but I'm thinking about in the meantime, there's still work on the ground that has to be done to help out those 
that want to find a way. There's a lot of law enforcement that were opposed to this legislation, a lot of law enforcement that recognizes the value of positive police and community relations, and we're going to have to help them um, address this issue legally. So one is, what is reasonable suspicion? I think the other one we're going to have to ask, help them identify is how long can we detain somebody to determine the status of somebody. So we know that most of the stops are going to be based on a legal pretext. And we know that's going to be one of the challenges you have, as many of you as, as uh, litigators, is that you're going to have some type of legal pretext based on a vehicle code violation or some other low, very uh, low violation, low-level low violation. Um, and then the question is, if the person does suspect, how much time do we give the officer, if any, to actually determine um, if they don't have papers, if this person is there, and if they cannot prove, whether they do, what's the next steps for that? And I think a lot of that will basically really determine whether or not officers really understand their limitations or whether or not the law itself is going to start guiding the direction of the departments themselves, if that makes any sense. So I, I think one of the key that has to happen is this is why I think the legislation, the End Racial Profiling Act, is so important. Right now, many of you know the issue of racial profiling is still really under much debate in the law enforcement industry, primarily because we have not provided any direction. So I'll see policies from around the country that will go uh, to where race is the sole factor. Uh, and I think all of us on this call realize that such a definition means that pretty much anything is accepted, the use of race in any capacity other than the sole. And I, think, I don't think too many people are going to acknowledge that they use the race as the sole for anything without admitting that they're into a, engaged in racist behavior. So that definition is very problematic. And add that in Arizona where you have policies that are saying that race can be used as long as not the sole factor with the idea that they're required, if I read the law correctly, to um, follow this reasonable suspicion that they believe someone is uh, undocumented, then we know what the outcome is going to be. So we need the legislation to make sure that we, they, we can identify and define uh, what is racial profiling. Uh, simply put, for me and what I tell my officers, uh, I think the community already knows, is racial profiling is when you use race as a uh, predictor versus a descriptor. And I think we can kind of turn that into very common language for officers to understand how they should use race, that race is really only a descriptor. Anything else outside of that, it starts getting into the idea of predicting crime, and I think that's when we get into biases and stereotypes. If we focus heavily on this idea of defining racial profiling, ensuring that there's training for the officers in the field, all the things that are inside the legislation, then that can have an impact on the implementation of 2B within Arizona because then the officer can question whether or not they actually have reasonable suspicion and whether or not the race of the person they're stopping is influencing their decision through a subconscious bias or even uh, uh, an overt bias. Absent that, I think we're going to see inevitably that you're going to have really the mass disparate stops of young men of color because people are trying to enforce this law. So I go back to the, the initial statement, to be or not to be, is what discretion do police chiefs have with regards to implementing this law? And so as a police chief, I'd have to ask if this was in California, what does this mean to me? How do I respond to this? What, are my, what discretion do I have? What can I or can I not do with regards to this law when I know that it's going to result in some type of constitutional violation, especially since the courts left it open? And I think besides the litigation aspect, which has to continue, we have to get on the ground, I think someone mentioned earlier, and start working with law enforcement leaders. And there's, some, there's a lot in Arizona that stepped up that, that really opposed it. 
to get them to help them manage this law so that it was very clear that it's going to result in racial profiling, but also provide guidance to all the other agencies on how to implement it or how to train their officers or use policy to control what the officers do or do not do. So for me, like I said, if this was California, I would really focus heavily on defining reasonable suspicion and how race cannot be a factor in that unless you're meeting the description of something that someone gave you as far as committing a crime. I would focus very heavily on um, the, you know, what, what constitutes, what kind of evidence would suggest that a person is illegal absent their own admission of it and really set the standard to such that absent a person telling you or you getting a, a reliable information that they are, then there really is not going to be very many circumstances in which papers please would be appropriate because you won't have the reasonable suspicion. And so, and I think that's what the officers are looking for. And I think this is one of those times that law enforcement is going to have to find a way to push back on it, but do so legally and within the framework of our checks and balance system. But I think I'm hoping that this group can help in many ways and really showing law enforcement uh, how to manage this law. Because to simply say that it's wrong, in the meantime, you have all these agencies in Arizona that are going to have to deal with it, um, and you're going to have advocates that will try to hold them accountable if they don't enforce the law. So there's some balancing acts for law enforcement. You're going to have the issues of crime and violence. To what the senator is saying, I think to win this battle in the public, outside the, the legal framework, is that we're going to have to, one, demonstrate that this is counter to public safety. And I think the senator said it best. All evidence is very clear that it is, and that the more you engage in disparate stops and profiling, the less likely you are to engage in effective policing. We can't afford it. With another one, how costly this is going to be to engage in this type of enforcement behavior, let alone the litigation that it may cause, and to provide direction of policy of how the officers can still do their job, maintain their relationship without violating the law, but set the standards as such that they will not engage in systemic or systematic racial profiling. So I see there's a lot of opportunity, and I don't know what this does from the uh, legal framework, but from looking on the field, I think there's a lot of opportunity for law enforcement to take a very strong leadership role into really just really identifying uh, what it will or will not do with regards to racial profiling. And I'll stop there and open up for any questions that you guys may have. Thank you so much for that, Chief Davis. And I think, you know, as we imagined this call, I never would have imagined Shakespeare being an integral part of the conversation on SB 1070 and racial profiling. So thank you for that unique perspective as well. So we are going to open it up for questions. As I told you earlier, if you want to ask a question, press star 1 on your phone, and then we will be able to unmute you um, so you can ask your question. And we will unmute people in the order that they get in the question queue. Um, I also would ask that when you ask your question, please identify yourself and if you're affiliated with an organization, then also what organization you're affiliated with. And finally, I know I myself have a couple of questions, but we do have someone in the queue already, so we're going to go to our first question, and if there ends up being a pause, I may ask a question or two myself. Thanks. Hello. My name is Jeremy Tobin. I'm with the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance. Uh, we've been fighting against the racist integration policies in Mississippi for years. Uh, most recently in the last session, we defeated uh, HB 488, which is a copycat Arizona 1070 law. It took an awful lot of effort because we have a Republican-controlled legislature and government and governor. Uh, we um, uh, are still in a fight with this. We managed uh, our advocacy caused the city of Jackson to enact an anti-racial profiling ordinance in the city of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, we have our, the law enforcement people here are um, 
I'm not very against the, the, the cost factor the way the chief just described it. Uh, my, my question was not so much to say that, to say that we are in solidarity with your, your efforts. Uh, I was on a conference call last week with um, another ACLU inspired uh, group, uh, Stanley and Needles, uh, did a follow-up call. I'm a priest. I have a church uh, about an hour from here in Carthage, Mississippi, with a lot of Guatemalan immigrants up there. Hey, Jeremy, if you could get to your question, please, because we have others in the queue. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll just stop there. I was just making a statement, that's all. All right. Well, thank you for that. If we could go to the next question. And if you could also let us know uh, who you're asking or directing your question to. Oh. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead then and ask my question. So, Opal, if I could ask you directly. I know you talked some about some of the resistance that's going on. Uh, some of the actions you have planned, but if you could tell us a little bit about what is the atmosphere on the ground? How are, you know, how are people reacting? How is it affecting communities and individuals? I'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah, so on the ground, um, communities, families, individuals are, some are scared. Some are, or some are honestly scared, uncertain about what this really means, and then some don't think this is going to impact them at all. And this is just, you know, being, being honest. Some folks, it's like kind of a mixed bag where it, the ruling was so ambiguous in many ways. Folks aren't so sure how it's going to be implemented. Um, so there's definitely mixed sentiments, no, you know, depending on where you go, who you talk to. Um, some folks are, you know, really concerned, and then some folks are like, yeah, you know, I think, uh, things are going to be okay, this will be overturned, um, or there's no real way to implement um, this. Uh, the core, uh, the people that we've been interacting with, though, have taken the stance that, you know what, um, it's still best for me to know my rights. It's still best to be aware of what to do in the event that uh, law enforcement pulls me over and, I, you know, I have some sort of interaction with law enforcement. I need to know at least how best to handle myself and, and be um, part of a community that can advocate uh, with me. And so that's that's been a lot of the sentiment that we've seen, um, and that's more through these efforts to organize communities. And then the other thing is that there are new crisis lives that have been formed to respond to questions that people have. So once we heard uh, the announcement from the Supreme Court, there were a lot of calls coming in. So there are volunteers who are now staffing uh, various crisis lines across the state and just answering, you know, basic questions and then questions that have to do with SB 1070 and then some questions that have to do with, you know, a variety of other uh, other concerns that people have. But just the fact that there's now a crisis line that's really targeted at the um, immigrant community. So if they do have any questions or any concerns or any incidents that arise, um, folks are there to at least document them as well as provide an opportunity to advocate with them or point them to an organization or a service provider or um, neighborhood group that can um, help address the issue they called um, about. Yeah, so thanks a lot for that assessment. We do have a few questions in the queue, so we're going to go to our first question. Uh, uh, this is Casey Chama from the uh, Center for Intercultural Organizing based in Portland, and this question is for uh, Chief uh, Ronald. So in terms of, uh, and potentially uh, Omar, in terms of the implementing S-1070, uh, 
10, uh, at 1070p. What what gui- guidelines or at least uh, directions are you getting from the federal government in terms of the implementing? Uh, whether you know, as the police chief, um, what are you getting some sort of a direction um, in order to implement this uh, uh, bill? And then the second question is that what advice do you have for us uh, to in order to approach our local uh, police? Uh, uh, departments in order to work with them, um, making sure that we, there's an act of balance between people's civil liberties as well as, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the law is not broke. Uh, broke. Uh, this is uh, Chief Davis. So I, I can't speak for Arizona, but I would tell you historically, as far as what, if, what guidance from the federal government with regards to the law to be none, and I think that's why most of us advocate, all of us are advocating for the Interracial Profiling Act. So one is you have, um, this is a state law with 1070, and so other than probably existing federal law with regards to the Fourth Amendment and potentially the 14th Amendment, I don't think there is guidance. And because of it, there's not, that is one of the main problems, in my opinion, is goes back to my earlier statement that as people interpret what is reasonable suspicion, what role race can play, uh, you're going to see the range from, from I mean, some, to, from extreme polars as far as what people think how race can be used. Um, so I, I think part of it is that I think we, or as individuals or collectively, can help provide that guidance. I think the best way to provide a guidance is the actual pass the Interracial Profiling Act so it's crystal clear. Um, and why this is also important, if I may say, is one of the things that all the agencies have, regardless of the state, even though we talk about the issue of federalism and states' rights, is all of us are still probably relying very heavily on federal funding. And so uh, one of the things we can do even addition, I guess, outside of the Interracial Profiling Act is to make sure that before agencies, police agencies, law enforcement agencies receive federal funding, whether they're COPS grants, whether they're other Department of Justice grants, which we all rely on very heavily, they usually require some type of anti-discrimination policy, and we can also make sure that they require anti racial profiling policies that are very clear in defining reasonable suspicion, how you can and cannot use race, because without it, then the federal government by, by default is funding these uh, unconstitutional practices. With regards to advice for other uh, police departments and the communities engaging, I think the best argument you can make, and I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to be uh, uh, pragmatic and, and real, is we can make the moral argument with regards to how people should be treated. We can make a constitutional argument, which would be debated as far as whether or not you can or cannot stop, whether you're talking about stop and frisk, whatever the case may be. Um, I think the best argument to make to law enforcement is the evidence-based one. In other words, to show police chiefs and your departments the benefit of not engaging in such practices, the benefit in strong community police relationships, and how it's going to make them better at crime fighting, and it's going to cost less. I think the senator's right. In this economy, none of us have the ability to engage in the same practices we did 10 years ago because, quite frankly, we just can't afford it. So I think we always make the moral argument. We always make the philosophical debate. We always focus on the Constitution. But for many of the departments, you just have to show them what's the return on their investment when they engage with the community. And I think there's examples. I like to think my department is one, 94% of color. It is one that, unfortunately, at one point was the murder capital of the United States. And working with this community with one of the lowest staffing ratios in the country, not engaging in stop and frisk, believing in redemption and rehabilitation, we've been able to cut our murders in half. Crime is down over 20%. 
our police and community relationships are, are strong. They're still very, I mean, they still need nurturing every day. Um, and we, we can give that example around the country where you, agencies are actually becoming more effective because they're using intelligence, the use of proper use of technology and intelligence. They're engaging in, in uh, with the community, and they're not engaging in practices that's going to cause communities to just basically just shut down. So I think you got to really let them see what's in it for them. I hate to put it that way, but I think that's the reality. Thanks, Chief Davis. So we've got three more questions. We're going to try and get to all of them. Uh, so next question, please. Yes, this is uh, Professor Ronnie Dunn from Cleveland State and Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, first, I'd like to thank all of the, uh, the, the chiefs and all of those that have commented. Uh, I have a meeting on Thursday with two state legislators to potentially introduce legislation on racial profiling at the state level. Now, uh, Cleveland has the largest minority population in the state, but it does not have local legislation at, at the local level either. So I'm working both at the local and state level to get racial profiling legislation enacted. I would like any recommendations that anyone can provide to help me make a, a very compelling argument to these representatives uh, why they should introduce this legislation, other than the obvious reason. Does anyone want to take that question? I just made this is Chief Davis. I'll make one recommendation. To the extent that you can get law enforcement support, um, which carries, uh, obviously we carry a lot of political weight. People look to us with regards to public safety. To the extent that you can get the support to understand um, what's happening and why they need to go in that direction would help you out tremendously to the legislators because what will happen is without them is you don't, what you don't want is your police officers association, your union, your police chiefs association to counter it with the idea that somehow um, that it will compromise public safety. One of the, unfortunately, one of the greatest ways that a lot of these efforts were thwarted throughout the country is this very inaccurate nexus that somehow this will tie the hands of police officers that will result in depolicing and it will make the communities unsafe. So part of it, if not already, I would recommend that you really reach out to some of your chiefs. Um, I'm biased. You have a good one in Cincinnati um, with, uh, with uh, Craig. And really start finding out what programs they have, what they're putting into place, um, and try to get their support. And if nothing else, at least don't get their opposition so that you're not really fighting against the entire industry uh, because of misunderstanding of what the legislation that you're seeking, what impact it will have on the uh, uh, on the state. Thanks again. So we're going to go to our next question. We've got two more in the queue. This is towards anybody who can answer the public affairs or media uh, questions. Um, will Working Rights Group or Rights Working Group uh, be developing uh, promos or broadcast PSAs or anything like that that people can use with digital media to help people understand your campaign? And uh, what are the types of things that you really want to show people in 30 seconds? So this is Jimena from Rights Working Group. We don't have PSAs. We do have a, a few in terms of you're looking for multimedia. We do have a couple of videos online. Uh, they are longer videos, but you can show clips of them. We have a lot of fact sheets as well as uh, you know, trainings and packets for people to use. So there's a number of resources on our website, www.rightsworkinggroup.org. Um, but again, no PSAs. You take the next one. Why is that? Why, why no PSAs? Uh, 
fundamentally funding. We don't have in-house capacity to create them, and we don't have a budget to create them. But if, you, if you'd like to contact me after, we could explore. If you know of people who are willing to work with us in doing that, we would love to. Can we take the next question? Hi, my name is Mark Heller. I'm with Advocates for Basic Legal Equality in Toledo, Ohio. Um, we have a profiling lawsuit going against the United States Border Patrol. But my question is a bigger policy question. I think it's related to the previous question. How do you argue against um, Border Patrol, the increasing resources that are put into them? And, and in this case, it's a station that's along Lake Erie. doesn't have any land border, but they have about $10 million of resources a year. And they're sitting there and, and uh, they're basically profiling Hispanics. So what's the policy argument against them? Because they say that they're fighting terrorism and gun smuggling and drug smuggling and human trafficking. Thank you. Well, Omar, I know the ACLU has done quite a bit of work on CBP, and they filed some lawsuits on the southwest border. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually I, – I, I mean, I'm afraid I don't have a lot more detail to offer except for what you just said, Janetta. Um Although, you know, I mean, I think certainly, uh, you know, I mean, one of the ironies about the Arizona case is that um, a lot of these other claims, the, the racial profiling claims, uh, are, are just as serious uh, when we're talking about federal officers doing immigration enforcement as they are uh, when we're talking about state officers doing it. So, you know, I think that... Um, you know, um, it's certainly not. Uh, we t we talk a lot about kind of state and local immigration enforcement leading to you know new incidents, new kind of opportunities and venues for racial profiling, but we shouldn't forget about the federal angle as well. And this is uh, Chief Davis. If I may add here, one of the things that I think we also have to ask for with the uh, legislation was it's unfortunately I think the. The, the administrative, I call it bulletin from the Justice Department definition, provides an exemption or an exception for Homeland Security, I believe. And so I think we have to get them to remove that from the federal definition of racial profiling would be very helpful. And I think that would then dictate or basically mandate uh, your Border Patrol and your other federal agencies. But as long as they have that exception, um, then you're going to have this kind of activity. And I think a lot of people have been advocating for the Attorney General to uh, amend and to update that uh, policy. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Thanks, Chief Davis. Certainly we have as well. And I'll just add, uh, PBS has been doing a series of documentaries now on, on CBP agents and issues of violence and accountability. And so there will be one airing this Friday, the 20th, on a PBS show called Need to Know, where they'll be looking at uh, cases of death at the hand of Border Patrol, but also you know, violence, sexual assault, and the Southern Borders Communities Coalition, will, they're here in Washington this week, and they'll be back in larger numbers next week. They're doing meetings on the Hill and with the administration to try and push the issue of CBP and accountability. The Northern Borders Coalition that's also forming has been working on this as well, so there's a couple of places for you to sort of plug in and link up and think through strategy. Again, you can reach me after the call if you'd like to follow up on that. My email is jmusa at rightsworkinggroup.org. So I would like to conclude this call by thanking our speakers, Omar Jadwa. Oh, okay, sorry, <laughs> I forget about those technical pieces. But I'd like to thank Omar Jadwa, Opal Tometi, uh, Chief Davis, and Senator Cardin for joining us today to talk about these issues. 
We know there's been a great deal of concern. A letter came uh, signed by Arizona groups to, this, uh, to DHS asking for them to limit their interaction with state and local police under this provision. This week we sent in a, a letter that was signed by 233 groups across the country asking for those same limitations on interaction by DHS with state and local law enforcement as they operate under Section 2B. So there's a lot to come. Opal gave us a good rundown. We appreciate very much your time. And again, you can also check our website for any updates, www.rightsworkinggroup.org. Thanks, everyone, for joining.